Clint, am I glad to see you. Yo, Joe! We'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe G.I. Joe is there. It's G.I. Joe against Cobra, the enemy, fighting to save the day. He never gives up. He's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe. Joe is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against Cobra, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe Welcome to Star Joe's Podcast, episode 95, the voice actor panel at JoeCon. I'm your host, Ryan, and a little bit quieter tonight just because it is late, late here in this studio, uh, but wanted to get this episode out to you guys. This is the voice actor panel from JoeCon 2013, where we had Bill Ratner and Mary McDonald Lewis, uh, who were the voices of Flint and Lady J., in the Sunbow cartoon. Uh, it was a great panel. Uh, we tried recording it just to see if we could uh, actually get a, a good recording, and it actually came out pretty well, So, as you guys hear. Near the end of the panel, there was a tribute song uh, with the song Lady, uh, which I put a little bit of the song into this episode, uh, a little bit clearer than, you can, than you'd be able to hear if you were just listening to the original recording, uh, but didn't want to put the full song in there because there was video that went with it and everything else. And then after the whole panel, I did put uh, a recent uh, audio. Uh, it was an audio video from Parks and Recreation where Pat Oswalt did a filibuster uh, in a uh, council setting where he decided to say what he would do if he was in charge of the Star Wars movies so, uh, that are upcoming for Episode 7. Uh, it's very hilarious. It ties into the Avengers movie and a lot of other things. So I thought it would be pretty funny to hear uh, for you guys if you haven't heard it already or seen it already. So that's about everything. So I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to the voice acting panel from 2013's JoeCon. These were made in France by a French toy company when when uh, Joe came to Europe in uh, 89. Oh, wow. Aren't they wonderful? What was the name of the booth where we got these? This was uh, Ro- Roma. It was Roma Collectibles. Yeah. yeah. Really fabulous. Okay. I love me. I love me. I'm crazy about myself. <laughs> I have little masks of me upon my shelf. <laughs> That's a middle-aged man's rapping. <laughs> kind of sad, isn't it? So we, we had a last-minute um, idea yesterday from talking to them afterwards, and this is something we've done for BotCon. And I wish we would have thought to do it yesterday, but we didn't. Um, but that's okay, because now you guys get a very, very special treat. But we will be putting this up on YouTube, like, really quickly. Um, we're going to do a very brief script reading. 
um, since there was like basically no planning on this. We wrote this last night, um, and of course you'll be doing Lady J. I'll just do the narration. I don't do this professionally or at all in any way she performs, so just bear with me. Um, but please understand that, uh, well not understand, I'm gonna give you quick, the quick backstory, very quick. So do you all, you all understand that the, uh, or you may, maybe you don't know, that Transformers and G.I. Joe have a very shared history back in the 80s. Flint Dill was the story editor for both Transformers and G.I. Joe. And in the third season of Transformers, they took the series to the future. So it went from the year 1986 to the year 2006. Well, they introduced a character on the show called Marissa Fairborn. Now, of course, you know the last name Fairborn. Well, it turned out that Marissa Fairborn was, in fact, and this has been for my story editor, the daughter of Lady Jane Flint. Daddy? Mommy. <laughs> and, and there was an episode uh, with Marissa that actually had, um, and I, he doesn't remember, but because it, it probably was literally one line, um, but Bill Ratner played Old Flint on the episode. I'm um, very proud of you, honey. They didn't, even, they didn't credit him as Flint in the credits, but it did in fact say Bill Ratner, and it said, you know, you know Marissa's dad. So basically the script we're going to do is titled, We're Having a Baby Joe. <laughs> this will be the story of where Lady J breaks the news to Flint. So, and just to give you guys a little uh, setup for what we're doing now, we haven't seen the script before, so we're going to read it cold for you guys and journey back to those golden days of yesteryear as Flint and Lady J. We haven't performed Flint and Lady J since the last for about five minutes <laughs> <laughs> since the last since the eighties, Bill. Um, so, so this will be kind of fun as we work the work our way through the script. So, what you'll hear is something that will sound probably more like uh, you would have heard had you been sitting around the, the big table at Wally Burr Studios, as all the actors would come in, sit down, pick up the script, and work their way through it for the first time. And my memory of it is that Wally Burr was so impatient, and Hasbro was on his back to get these things done. That we read most of the cold. Absolutely. We didn't sit around the table reading like they do in, in police episodics. Right. We would come in, it'd be on the stand, and Wally Burr would say, No, Michael Bell, you can't leave and go to your other job. Get to the stand and go. <laughs> so this is really a recreation. We haven't seen this before. Right. Uh, Pete, thank you. And whoever, who, uh, who wrote this? Uh, Jesse Whitworth, right now. Hey. Jeff, you and Joe, this is fantastic. <laughs> and and uh, so this is really a recreation of. The cold reading that, that right. a lot of these things were. But, if there was know. any uh, uncertainty about what we were doing, Wally would have a storyboard for us there, so that if Lady J said, oh, he would say, take a look at the picture, she's just been knocked in the head by, by Destro, so it's an oh, as opposed to a oh, if you know, kissed her at the kitchen sink. And, and also you'd have time to, to read ahead, because it's dialogue, it's group stuff. So we would we would sit there and read ahead and go find our lines. These are how actors mark their lines. Bullshit, bullshit. My line. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do need one thing from all of you because uh, there is one additional character or a co characters. Uh, when you hear me say that I'm going to start it off when I say one fearful cry, I need you all to yell Cobra, as Cobra would yell. So you'll know your cue. Maybe I'll give you a little cue. All right. So if we're ready. Here we go. All right. So we are having a baby Joe, JoeCon 2013 live script reading. Streams of smoke flow across a field once woven from wisps of blue-green blades of grass, but is now marred with ashen craters and scattered earth. 
The inhabitants of this remote land have fled. No birds sing, no insects chirp, and, on all the, and although the wind blows, it cannot be heard over the sound of screaming ammunition and one fearful cry. See? <laughs> Foot and Lady J have found themselves faced by advancing enemy vipers. Get to cover, Lady J. There's no cover to get to. We're sitting targets here. We need to evacuate and meet up with the others. As the two Joes turn, a hail of lasers ripped into the ground before them. Oh. Ah! These snakes aren't going to let us run from this fight. Good men. I wouldn't want them to take it easy on us. All of us. I'll stay here and give him something to shoot at. Communications are down. Get back and tell Duke and Hawk what Cobra's up to. We don't have to go down. Flint, I... I have another idea. No shot him, my dear. <laughs> Lady G retrieves one of the javelins from the pack on her back. She twists its handle, activating a chemical reaction inside the soon, and soon a gray fog billows from the weapon. Lady J hefts the javelin and hurls it towards the Cobra Vipers. <laughs> the javelin digs into the battle-baked soil. Cloud quickly spills over the combat zone and the enemy's view is obscured. You're amazing in more ways than one. I know. Yo, Joe! Flint leaps from the smoke with his fist swinging. It connects with the viper's chin, launching the soldier backwards. At the same time, Lady J delivers a quick kick to the viper's side, causing him to crumble to the ground, gasping to retain his breath. <laughs> we always did make a good team, baby. Flint, I... I have something. Watch out! Another viper! The enemy soldier raises his, raises his rifle and fires. A bolt of blue light strikes Flint's leg. Ah! Flint! Lady J swings the second javelin, which smashes into the viper's helmet, and the man goes down. However, more vipers can be heard approaching. I think you're going to have to leave me here after all. Go get help. I'll try to take as many of these slimy servants with me as I can. No! I can't leave you, Flint. I have something that I have to tell you. Don't make me give you an order, Lady J. Get out of here. Just let me... Run! I just... Go and meet up with the other Joes. Hold on! Lady J, go. Listen. I order you to... We're having a baby. I... I... Not yet. <laughs> I found out this morning. I, I couldn't tell you, but now... Um... Um, uh, <clears throat> well, now, now, now uh, this, this, this changes everything. Changes everything? You act like your life is over now. No, 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 I mean, I mean, help me up. Whoever, our child is, is going to be, he's, he, he is going to have a father. That's more like it. Let's show Cobra how dangerous parents can be when their kid is threatened. Stand over there and get ready to start firing on my signal. The sound of approaching footsteps grow nearer. So... Uh, what are we going to name him? I haven't even had the time to think about that. How about uh, Colton? He's the reason we're here together. Now wait just a minute. It could be a girl too, you know. Uh, of course, but... Don't I'll... tell me you prefer a son. I'd I love a daughter too. I just want... him to be a boy. No, no. I... The other footsteps sound close now, just mere feet away. Only the cloud of smoke still lingering prevents the Joes from seeing their enemy. What about uh, Rachel? What? If it's a girl, Rachel. I don't like it. You don't like it? Rachel was my great-grandmother's name. Everyone loved her. Rachel was our neighbor, nastiest woman on the block. Everyone hated her, Flint. Fair enough. Margaret? 
Margaret. I like it. Maggie was my uh, high school girlfriend. Then go to Margaret. The footsteps stop and the smoke clears to reveal three forms nearby. Get ready. Now. Wait. The smoke surrenders the identities of the others. It's a, it's a mother and father with a small girl who are attempting to return to their home. The girl stares at Flint with her eyes wide. It's a family. But they're not alone. Those are definitely Cobra. Get down. Stay down. Here they come. Later, back at G.I. Joe headquarters. That's right, General Hawk. There were three additional Cobra personnel who Flint and I dispatched after an extended struggle. And we delivered our intel securely. Mission accomplished. We were able to get the family back to their home safely. They were very grateful, even offering a home-cooked feast in our honor. Hey, what was the little girl's name? I think it was Marissa. Hmm, I like that. So do I, Flint. If it's a girl, she'll be Marissa. The end. Like I've never, never, never heard. heard. Never hear again. Yeah. <laughs> and knowing is half the battle. I will leave it to you now. <laughs> well, that was fun, Bill. It brought back old memories. Fantastic. It was really, really excellent. I think one of the things that I, I guess the thing really that that uh, was significant for me in terms of working on on GI Joe was this relationship that we really did get to have uh, um, something special that really none of the other Joes had. You know, they had other traits and other skills and other interesting qualities. And, you know, Duke and Scarlett had a relationship as well, but we were talking about that yesterday. About it was kinky and, and weird. really depraved. <laughs> Who wants to know them, you know? But, uh, no, we, we think that, that ours, and not just because it's ours, but kind of a little bit because it's ours, is ours was sort of chewy and real. You can imagine these soldiers, even today, you know, couples in Iraq or Afghanistan who are serving together, who have to both be tough in the field and overlook the fact that you have this heart connection, but then somehow find a way to reconnect intimately when the when the battle's over. Somebody asked a question yesterday: Was the was our relationship uh, written into the script, or did they sort of see us hanging out and? start to write it, and it was written in. I mean, that was the brilliance of the writing, was they created on paper before they met us, and I think before we had the roles, this kind of fun relationship, no nonsense in terms of action, but, uh, and it just so happened that we were cast, and we had been friends before. We met in a voiceover workshop in 1981, and became dear friends, and, uh, we had such a good time. I think we we were both with other people. We had secret thoughts, and we were away from home to a duty. You know, and uh, so it, it really worked. And I think the writers got that once they saw the miniseries. Uh, they they saw well, the, and they started working on it. Right. And so we were really lucky. It was pure luck yeah. that that we had good writers and that they were able to create that in the midst of chaos and battle and and action and. Missions. We the, the friendship continues to this very day. In fact, as I've described it to some of the fans here, we're always in each other's kitchens. When I go down to Los Angeles on business or pleasure, 
I stayed at Bill's house with his family, and we stayed up late at night drinking wine and solving the problems of the world and having coffee together in the morning. And in just a few weeks, Bill has a storytelling event in Portland. He'll be up staying at my house, and, uh, and we'll be spending time here as well. Messing up the basement. I know. Damn him. He's such a slob. So do you guys have any questions for us? Yes. Uh, okay, besides each other, you want to give me... <laughs> Besides each other, um, who else did you really enjoy working with on the show? Maybe which character did you like doing interplay with? You know, it was interesting. As the show wore on, we did we did two seasons before Deke took over from Sunbow, and before the uh, Screen Actors Guild cartoon strike. And Deke said, "If you strike, we're taking it to Canada." Um, so we had two solid years and two seasons of recording. What happened um, was. Um, the Star Wars first was so unbelievably successful with their three-inch figures and were making hundreds of millions of dollars. And then along came Hasbro, G.I. Joe, and Transformers, uh, which became unbelievably successful franchises. And so suddenly, in about 1985, there were dozens of wannabe production companies, you know, from Warner Brothers to smaller studios, who said, we want in on the money. And uh, they went to their, their parent corporations who were on the other side of the table from the Screen Actors Guild and said, uh, we want to do this on the cheap. The heck with George Lucas, the heck with Hasbro and G.I. Joe and, and Transformers. We want these actors for 12, 15 hours. We want to do 50 voices and we don't want to pay them what they're being. Let's lower the rate. And, and uh, you know, we, were, we were allowed to do three voices and we were paid X number of dollars you know, for the session. And nobody got rich. Um, but you can make a living and get your, your health care paid to the union. And uh, the wannabes, after, as, after Lucas's and Hasbro's success, said, nah, they don't need that, and we need more voices out of them. And uh, if you don't agree, Deke said specifically, and others as well, uh, then you can go ahead and walk on the streets, and Deke said, we're going to take the show to Canada. And we, ha- we you know, we're members of the union, we had a negotiating committee, your fellow members, voice actors, actors, face actors, who said, no, we can't, this is not going to happen. I mean, you know, you guys have money, you're making money, we need to be paid. And uh, uh, so we walked, and Deke said, bye-bye. And so season three, that's why you hear, oh, no, oh, yeah, it's so cool out there, uh, or the Toronto accent, with actors who were paid about half what we were. And, and destroyed uh, their voices. And uh, destroyed their voices. And uh, Destro, uh, rather, Cobra Commander. Uh, Chris Lotta was the only one who was kept on. And the rest of us turned in our dog tags. And we, we didn't really know. We thought, what a great run, two years on a cartoon. It was great. And we had no idea what was going to happen to G.I. Joe as a franchise. Longevity as a brand. And longevity as a brand and as a lifestyle. This is my first joke on This has been an incredible experience for me. It's brought up unbelievable memories of the sessions and you know my early pathetic attempts to collect and and, uh, and hanging out with you guys has been a gas because most of you know uh, more than I do about you know specifics of, of, of when things are manufactured, episodes, and so on. So this is a very long uh, answer to your question. And, and hasn't in fact answered it at all. Mm-hmm. I plan to do that next. <laughs> Just let me think. Uh, you, you think on it. The, so the, the question was, uh, and that's it's fascinating. I love this information. It's important information about the history. 
because that really is the history, kind of the skeleton of the show, what was going on behind the scenes, which we're really glad to share with you guys. In terms of interplay on the show, I can tell you that one of the strengths of the show is that it was a true ensemble piece. We, we got to have our special relationship. But, you know, if you were in a fight with guys uh, in the story and you needed to struggle and really sound like you were struggling and fighting, a couple of guys on either side of you would grab your arms and hold you so that you could literally <coughs> struggle against a, a cobra. Now, if you're if you're winning, if you're being victorious, if you're driving that fight, they weren't holding you because then it was <laughs> that kind of stuff. But everybody knew what they needed to do to help each other make it work. And there was a lot of shenanigans. Um, Chris Lada and Arthur Burkhardt would show up from lunch late every day, and nobody cared. I mean, you know, they're two three minutes late, but Wally Burr cared, and he would oh, he repeated himself over and over. I was the youngest tank commander in all of World War II. You guys ain't gonna bullshit me. Get back to the microphones. I told you not to be late. And he was, you know, I'm a military man. And he was. And that's how he ran the sessions. He was a nice guy. I love Wally. And we're still friends. But he was able to get decent work out of us. Right. And so they were always, Chris and, 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 and Arthur, you know, with these great voices who come in. Oh, really, sorry, Wally. Uh, you know, we were at Subway. And it's, it's, really, it's hard to get on a sandwich. And, and um, Michael Bell... Duke worked so much at the time that I think he had eight or ten other cartoon series that he was doing. And so he would have to get across town. And so he would come in. He always wore this uh, oh, a little yeah. African man purse. Right. Literally, every single day. Across he had a collection his photographer's of, vest. Across his photographer's vest. And I think he, there was room for like a driver's license and... Uh, Maybe some mascara, I don't know. And, and uh, he would come in, and we would all be together hanging out, and, you know, some of us were late, some of us were not, it really didn't matter. And the first thing he would say, hey, Michael, uh, can I go first? Yeah. And we would torture him. We'd say, oh, man, what time is it? Yeah, i got to get to shopping to Nordstrom's in about yeah. a couple hours. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Just to torture him, because he had so much work as a cartoon voice. Right. And Wally would say, Michael, I'm going to say, oh, you have to ask the group. It's up to the group. <laughs> and we would, we would confab. Well, let's, Michael, if you leave the room, we want to talk to about it. it. Come on, guys, come on. <laughs> so that would go on almost every time. And I think, didn't Wally lock the doors once and not let Arthur and Chris back Yes, here? yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spending Hasbro's time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what else? Oh, I want to answer, when you're on the way at the mic for Tony, um... The, uh, does anybody remember? Uh, well, this would be impossible to remember since I'm the oldest one in the room. But uh, there was a fabulous uh, live marionette show on in 1952 called Fearless Plastic, and I think you can actually see episodes on YouTube. Black and white film noir, uh, real bullets. Uh, Fearless Plastic would get it from the bad guys. He would own a marionette on a stage. He would open up his jacket in front of Eunice Pimpleton's apartment. Filled with bullet holes like Swiss cheese With smoke coming out of the bullet holes This is a kid's show in 1952 <laughs> The greatest thing I'd ever seen And uh, it went off the air And I asked my dad And he said, oh, there's no accounting for taste on television Blah, blah, blah And in walks in the G.I. Joe session Season 2 Chuck McCann, big, tall Irishman uh, who, was, who had been a master puppeteer And he had his own show And he, he did a couple of films uh, 
the projectionist is one of his films who brought starring Rodney Dangerfield and um, uh, he was very quiet very sort of standoffish big guy he was a celebrity and here he's with a bunch of grunts like us and uh, I, I was telling this story to somebody about Fearless Plastic and he comes from behind me with this big beefy hand on my shoulder it's Chuck McCann Fearless Plastic yeah it was a great show on television you ever see it? I built Fearless Fosdick. I built Rudy Kazuti. I built Eunice Pimpleton. Built all these fabulous puppets as a you know, 20-year-old working in television. And so there were moments with these demi-celebrities. Ed O'Brien was another was a celebrity at the time. Would come in and do these gigs, and we'd sort of sit there and you know search for our autograph books. And uh, most of them were actually very pleasant. Um, uh, Burgess Meredith was a big star, you know, and Rocky and so on. He came in to do... The movie. Yes. Yeah. And what was his character? Galobulus. Galobulus. Yeah, thank you. And uh, he, I told this to a couple of guys last night, he would come in and he would take the music stand where a copy was and he would turn it horizontal and put a big wad of Kleenex on I told this story yesterday. And uh, he would hock and spit into an entire box of Kleenex and leave, it was like a huge bouquet and he would leave them. And I would, I, never, I thought, I'm never going to get a chance to talk to Burgess Meredith again. So I went up and I said, Mr. Meredith, I'm a huge fan, a lot of you Rocky, blah, blah, blah. As a souvenir, may I take one of your Kleenexes? And he looked at me and he said, if you must. <laughs> so those are some of the things that went on in the room over those two years that were really just a total gas for me as a fan of old t 50s, 60s television to be with these guys who were, you know, a little older and were brought in in the second season, it was really fun. Question Yeah, I, I was saying that uh, when y'all did, uh, had Sergeant Slaughter with y'all when, uh, I think it was season two, or when, you know, they got the man that they made to Pedro, the Cobra Emperor. How did y'all feel when y'all was working with uh, Sergeant Slaughter against uh, the new emperor, Cobra, Cobra Commander is no longer the leader. How did y'all feel when y'all was going against him? Would, would somebody give, before we answer that question, would somebody give a, uh, just a brief thumbnail bio of Slaughter, of the real guy? The is, it, is it wrestler? The wrestler. Yeah. 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 yeah, pro wrestler. Yeah, yeah. We don't, I never saw it. Yeah, I think he was brought in special. Yeah, you know, I think he, he, he absolutely was brought in special. Uh, probably recorded on his own. And then they, you know, they, they cut his lines in with all of ours. Uh, one of the reasons that Joe shines today is that we recorded our stuff all together, all at the same time, live, real time, like old-time radio theater, old-time radio drama. And uh, so, so a lot of us separate. But I will say that... It's, you know, I don't, I don't fault anybody's work, but I have a, a preference and a bias toward proper voice actors. I like working with real voice actors as opposed to folks who are in because of their celebrity. They don't have the skill sets. They don't have uh, uh, the, uh, the passion for the work that we do. You know, this sounds like snobbery, but it's not. I can't tell you how many times friends of mine, like like the guy, the dad from the old 90210, actor named James Exhouse, is a friend of mine, and many, many others who, who you know, working actors who realize that they see their friends, Michael Douglas and everybody else, Jason Alexander, doing voiceovers. 
and Alec Baldwin is one of the one of the biggest voiceover guys in the country, and he leases a studio near his home in Long Island, doesn't doesn't own it, and just pays by month because he has so much work and he goes in there all the time. But actors who don't do voiceovers, who you see on television all the time, will come to people like I say, how oh, I'd love to get into this, man. I don't want to dress up and you know I'm not working this month and so on and so on. And I'll say, well, you know, come on over. We'll just hang on, record a couple things, and uh, and they'll get up to the mic. It'll be streams of smoke blow across the field. And I said, no, 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 you're not Mid Atlantic. This is not Shakespeare. Streams of smoke blow flow. And so voice acting is a weird art. It's a it's an odd art that you're not you're not using your body, you're not being seen, but it's, it's so what you're doing with your voice and characterization is all that much more important. And, and, and I mean, I'm still having doing this for thirty five years. I'm still learning. Same. And I'm still I like to think getting better and getting gigs that I wouldn't have gotten ten years right. ago because I would have given a wooden reading. So there's a learning, there's a learning curve, just like there is for anything. And you guys are specialists and stuff. Just like there is in anything, there's a learning curve. And, um, and I love the fact that actors suck at voicing. <laughs> there's also an initial passion. I moved to Hollywood <clears throat> fundamentally to work with my voice. I had no idea where my career would go, but I can tell you this much. I did not move to Hollywood, California to become an on-camera actor. I never pursued it. Uh, I think it's awesome. I love people who do it. I work in the field now as a dialect coach, so I work with tons of on-camera actors. I'm on set all the time as dialect coach these days. But 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 I don't have the love and joy in my heart, and that makes a difference in terms of what you bring to the microphone. Except on Grimm. Except I watched Mary. I went on Hulu, and uh, NBC Grimm, and the episode is called The Sandman. The Sandman. And I'd never seen Mary act on camera, and suddenly this you know 120 year old character comes out who looks kind of like Mary McDonnell Lewis. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. And it was really spooky. And my daughter doesn't watch much television. She's 18, watches a little HBO, and she looked at this a police procedural with monsters, and uh, she goes, "That was really good. I think I'm going to start watching television." <laughs> so check out check out Mary in 10 minutes into uh, the Sandman on Hulu of yeah. Grimm. An yeah. NBC show, Thank you. and you'll see uh, what I think she really looks like. <laughs> Inside, I'm 120 years old. I do have four episodes on Grimm coming up. The first one's already been up. The next one's coming up this Friday. It's a great, great, great episode. I'm driving this beater 1970s stick shift Fiat in the middle of the night. It takes three and a half hours to put the latex on to for the, for the character, and an hour to take it off with. Ivory soap lathered out to here and steam towels for days. I was on set, I'm typically on set for 12 hours. Half of that time is either getting ready for the role or, or, or de, you know, de, deconstructing from the role. Um, so just know that on next Friday, you'll see me driving this beater Fiat. I'm actually driving, it's not green screen. I drive into a gypsy camp. There's all these tons of gypsies with AK-47s and big black, uh, they're called Belgian sheepdogs. Uh, Belgian Trevurans is another, they look like a black German shepherd. Um, so I'm literally driving this beater Fiat up to its marks. The Fiat has to hit its marks so that they can then catch the scene from the steady cam on either side of the car from one of the scenes and then the other one uh, I have to get out of the car, walk, talk, act. It's insane what they expected me to do. And the reason she got the gig was because she, there is no actor in Portland, or probably very few in Los Angeles, 
who could do the accent. She has a, a, an Austrian accent. She's, uh, I would describe, I would describe her in Rombe as a, you know, a vampiric yeah. character. Sure. But the, 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 the genuineness of this accent, mm-hmm. it's like it's not a knockoff of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and so that was interesting in the casting as they cast her at doing a fabulous job on camera, but really because of the voice. It's true, actually, yeah. So next question. Hi, Mary Bill. Thank you again for being here. Um, glad to live with your first trip on. It's uh, warm, welcoming, and treat you well. Thank you. Uh, also, thanks for the visual of Michael Bell uh, in real life. I don't think many of us has an image of a uh, photographer's jacket and African man first. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I was just kind of curious. You all have so many great stories. I'm kind of curious if you have any stories of being recognized or having your voice recognized in real life. Especially maybe in the '80s when the show was going on, and someone ever looked at you in like a store and like, where do I know that voice from? Right. This is really a, I have a very sad answer for that. The only time I, my voice has ever been recognized, sort of cold, without you know, completely out of context, uh, I was at LAX, the airport in Los Angeles, and uh, buying a magazine or something on the way to a flight, and this very old woman, about 75 years old, working on a cash register, said. Young fella, I think I recognize your voice. And I said, Oh, that's very nice. From what? Well, you're on Channel 7, and aren't you on that cartoon where they shoot people? (laughs) (laughs) And so that is the only time. But in other contexts, um, I went to a, 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 those of you who've been in New York City, in the Lower East Side on East 8th Street, there's a, a fabulous comic book shop. And uh, my daughter's going to school, and I went in, and uh, as a young kid, you know, 26-year-old kid said, yeah, may I help you? And I said, do you have any G.I. Joe stuff? And he looks at me, and, and he said, yeah, there's a couple, a little bit. And they had a kind of a paltry display of G.I. Joe. And I said, hey, any chance you have any, you know, flint action figure or anything? And he looks at me like, what does this old guy want? Why is he lurking in my store? And, and he had a little attitude. So, so to, to get, get him back, I said... Yo, Joe, no one tapped the battle. And he jumped. And whoa, there we go. And, and uh, he literally ran away. I thought I scared the poor young thing. Thank you. And um, uh, he came back in about five minutes, literally not right away. And he said, I'm really sorry, I looked you up on IMDb. And, uh, and he had a comic in 1989 that I've seen a few of that's worth some money. And he handed it to me and he said, this is a gift for you and you have a, you have a 10% discount in the store for life. <laughs> <laughs> so he made up for his slight. That's awesome. That's awesome. Last night, uh, I was stalking the halls looking for a vegetarian meal and I was talking to the, our wonderful catering staff and one of the guys heard me talking to someone else and he came up to me and he said, literally, I recognize your voice. Are you... Lady J? I said, well, there's the Joe Con right here. He said, what are you talking about? There's a G.I. Joe Con right here. You're, don't you, haven't you? He goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm telling you, I just recognize your voice. And I'm asking you if you played Lady J on G.I. Joe. So just last night, someone asked me that. Um, I have been recognized through the years. And when I first, this I think speaks to the importance of intention and visualization. I am a natural born optimist. And all through my life, I've simply set my sights on what it is I wanted to do, 
I've seen it, and then I've manifested it with the aids of all of the muses and gods and goddesses and dragons and so on and so forth that roam the skies, roam the invisible skies, whispering help and putting wings beneath my, wind beneath my wings. It is in this spirit that they were never able to bring Lady J down in the series, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> I rose above it. And so anything I've ever wanted to do, I've done. I just see it in front of me, and then I set up and, and, and get it done. When I first got into voice acting, when voice acting, by the way, was the red-headed stepchild of, of face acting, no one wanted to be a voice actor. You were a failed artist. You were a failure if you were a voice actor. They used to say to me, oh, you're a voice actor. Do you want to do any real acting ever? Now, of course, everybody wants to get into it. By then, it was really disdain. And so the notion of moving into this field that was so subpar was, it was an interesting choice. As well, of course, people, everybody told you one in ten jobs is for a woman. You'll never break in. It's a completely closed clique. And I'm like, whatever. you know. And I just kept walking forward. At that time, back in the day, I said to myself, I want to be able to walk up to a counter somewhere and buy a pack of gum and walk away and have that person think, where do I know her from? You know, it's, the context is weird for, for us. I mean, I was born in 1947, and I, I, I was a radio freak as a five-year-old. And, and I remember, I think, Fibber McGee and Molly was still on. You know, oh, no, Molly, don't open the closet door. Ah, shut up. And, and, I, and I thought it was kind of old-fashioned and weird. It just, I want to listen to rock and roll radio. And uh, but later I met my uncle who was Bobby the Bill Boy and I Love Lucy. He was an actor. We never knew him. My parents sort of were in the Midwest. My parents were like, oh, Bobby's got some problems, some issues. And uh, he was an actor who. Uh, and um, after he died, I didn't get to know him very well. He was an interesting guy, and you know he was sort of a star for 13 weeks on the show. I went to the UCLA Film, TV, and Radio Archive. And uh, the radio archivist was blind. He had a, he had, he had, the archive was about as big as a broom closet, but hundreds and hundreds of old 12-inch uh, transcription discs from radio shows. And he said, uh, Joe Wilson was your, your uncle. And he, everything was labeled in Braille, and he worked his way down the stack and pulled out this disc, pulled it on the turntable. Your uncle did eight episodes of Harvard Detective of Chicago NBC Network in 1948. And he put the needle down on the disc, right on the seat. Wow. Ah, you rat. Yeah, 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 you're, you're through. Oh, Morty, I didn't squeal on nobody, I swear. And it was my uncle. And then he and I began this conversation about, for him as a blind person, how much radio man. Radio was all there was. You know, there were Hollywood films you could see in the 30s and 40s and, and, and so on, but radio was all there was, so voices were the thing. I worked in a studio on uh, Melrose across from Paramount Studios and it was so old. Yes. It was old ceiling tiles, sound yes, tiles, tiles and, sure. and it, uh, that, was, that studio was built uh, so that they could take the stars from Paramount who were on the lot and uh, have them do uh, See, radio yeah, what shows. what have you been doing this week, June? What are you doing? I'm just delighted to be here. You know, I'm right across the street making a picture. Yes, well, Barrymore and I had a drink last night. Well, a dozen, actually. And, uh, we, yes, thank you. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was really, radio was such a big deal, and voices were such a big deal. Uh, I listen to NPR sometimes, all things considered. P PBS tried um, all things considered on the road. 
uh, uh, all these, these warm, interesting people on camera, it lasted about six days. Because on camera, they were grim, you know, literally. And so it's a, there's an interesting disconnect in the way that they did the, the casting. And I don't know if there's been anything since Transformers and G.I. Joe. I don't want to get weird and say, I ah, was the end of the culture after a while. Yeah. <laughs> but I really don't think there's been a franchise, uh, a, a TV cartoon franchise, that has involved the quality of the animation, the quality of the writing, the quality of the directing. I don't think, if, if anybody can think of any, anyone, uh, look, please let me know. You know, I grew up going to those old-time radio stations as well. I was doing live radio drama in um, Sacramento as a young girl in college. My father was a Unitarian minister, and my mother was a stage actress who really knew both my parents. And uh, uh, Mom played all the characters over 30, and I played all the characters under 30, including all the little boys. My first stage role, actually, was as a little boy. And those acoustical tiles, right, the little dots and... And the old, the old time radio guys that I worked with at, at uh, KPFK in Sacramento, to me, those funky little rooms, they all needed cleaning. So removed from the rest of the world, that was where I wanted to be. And even to this day, when I'm driving down Route 66 heading east in my car, if I'm on a road trip as an example, I can look out into a field and spot an old radio station. The old cinder block buildings and the... 3,000 watt antenna sticking up literally out of a barn. Literally sticking up out of a barn. I'll pull my car off to the side of the road and get out and walk around that old building and, and, and take pictures. Because to me, I don't know, it was just where life got transmitted out from. The stories of outlaw radio, the Carter family broadcasting on outlaw radio down there on the border of Tijuana. 50,000 watts broadcasting across America. The broadcast was so strong that birds would drop from the sky, radiated by the strength of that antenna. You could get the Carter family on your bed springs in San Diego. It's true. It's, it's, it's true. It's amazing. I love the notion of being able to reach the people, that kind of stretch. I will say one more thing about being recognized for your voice, and that is that one time I was driving out in Central Oregon somewhere, and I listened to this radio spot. You hear a lot of bad voiceovers, and, uh, and I, I like this one. I turned it on, it was, it was on, and I, I leaned forward, and I, I said to my pal in the car, I listened for probably 10 or 15 seconds, and I said, oh, she's, she's good. She's good. And then I said, oh, God, it's me. <laughs> I, had, I had one of those where, where I was working my first radio job. And I had a date with this woman for the first time, and uh, she got in the car, and I had just done my only modeling job of my life. They wanted a guy to look at a, a power bill, your electric bill, go like this, and I could do that well. This day is so I had, I had bought about 25 copies of the newspaper because it was the last modeling job I'd ever get. <laughs> and so we're in the car, I picked her up, I showed her the paper, Haley, that's me. And then I was, I was listening to the station that I work at, this little suburban station in, in, near Pittsburgh, California. And uh, I said, hey, that's me. And she goes, oh, interesting. How's it feel being surrounded by yourself? <laughs> that was our last day. <laughs> Other questions? Thank you both for, for being here. It's really great having you. Um, my question is, what is the most difficult voice characters you've done? And what is the most fulfilling voice characters you've done? Good question. Most fulfilling. Um, do you want your answer? Well, you know... Um, 
movie trailers are, are a whole other art for voiceovers. And uh, I was auditioning for a company in L.A. that was producing the t- TV campaign for Talladega Nights, the Will Ferrell movie. And um, uh, I was getting some of that work, but not a whole lot. And uh, I was kind of, you know, it's a comedy, so it's got to be funny. Hey, Talladega Nights. And the guy was obviously, he was on the phone. And he was recording on his end through these digital phone lines. And he was not obviously not happy. And I didn't know what else to do. And I thought, well, there goes that job. And which is an incredible gig. And you get a movie campaign that's day after day after day after day after day. And when I say day, it's like 15-minute sessions. So you're not exhausting yourself. And I got to pay a you know, union-scale rate for the day for those sessions. It goes on for weeks. And, and uh, I thought, well... Oh, Bye-bye, and, you know, I'm going to have to hawk the Bentley again. <laughs> and then he said something to me. He said, let's pretend this is not funny at all. Let's pretend this is the most serious movie you've ever sold. And you, and you are, to- you have no humor, you are totally humorous. So, and I, and I remembered, we used to come up and talk about this last night. I remembered a character I played in a friend's student film totally humorless guy, football coach in front of the San Francisco State football team. If you, you creeps can suck each other on the jaw and you can smack each other in the ribs, but if I see you touching each other in the buns, you're off this team. And he was just, just this, you know, I remember the football players looking at me like, who is this guy? <laughs> but that was the guy that I remembered. It was this sort of Midwestern, Puritan, uh, humorless, authoritarian figure. Uh, and uh, so I did that guy. This is Will Ferrell. Blah, 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 blah. And, and who's your daddy? Talladega Nights. And that was the hardest character. I know this is not for animation that I got. And I've been writing on that one day, that one uh, uh, audition, ever since. And the last one I, I did was, was the, the incredible Burt Wonderstone. The incredible Burt Wonderstone. You know, serious is serious business. Steve Carell, Jim Carrey. So that that that's my answer to that question. That was the hardest one. It took me years to start getting those gigs because they had other guys who got it, and I, you know, had, yeah. I would say you know it's a uh, it's an interesting question, and. Should we uh, be so fortunate as to come back again? I'll have a different answer for you next year. I would say that, um, in general, anytime I get to do a spot where I feel like I'm bringing comfort to people, that's the most important spot to me at the moment. I I just did a a recent spot about how to be a better parent, how to not... it It was fundamentally a spot about remembering to not argue not to scream and fight, particularly young parents, in front of babies in cribs. So it was a TV VO. So you've got this child in the crib, and you've got my voice saying, you know, we can we can help you with this, and, and we can make this better, and it's going to be okay. That stuff really matters to me big time. Along those lines, political spots, uh, anytime there's a major campaign, such as a presidential election, when I'm hired to do spots uh, for things that I believe in, such as a woman's right to choose, even mine, and uh, other other aspects of being kind to each other, other aspects that focus on social justice and equality. When I get a chance to voice those campaigns, um, those are very meaningful to me. In fact, one of my spots was played on the Rachel Maddow show, 
as being one of the most controversial spots in the presidential campaign, having to do with some person in Arizona who was running and fundamentally wanted to take everybody's rights away to do anything. And I was very pleased and proud to voice the spot that, that, that fought that particular individual. All of my candidates won this year, by the way. All the candidates that I voiced won. I, I, I think the, the hardest spot for me, the hardest announced day, was 9-11. Uh, I worked for a lot of TV stations, and I was working for uh, WCBS in New York. And uh, I didn't, I was in, my studio was in my garage at that time, so I didn't have a television set, and I had the internet, it was, you know, it was okay uh, then. But uh, I was just seeing still images, the most haunting, thumbnail-sized images that we all have in our heads. And WCBS, uh, New York, three hours ahead of me in California, called at about, um, I think they could wait until noon Eastern time to call. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, planes happened much earlier than that. And uh, I was sitting by the phone. And uh, they were very subdued. They were in Midtown, and they were able to see from CBS exactly what was going on, and they knew what would happen. And uh, they said, uh, we just want to talk to people. We don't want to announce. We just want to talk. And, uh, you know, then they talked about what, what they felt their ability to serve as a TV station was. And that's when TV really is, is helpful and not irritating, is during times of national emergency. Um, that was a, a hard day of announcing and a hard day for uh, this country. And on the voice side, Billy, places you on a par. I know that's the first time I've heard that story. Places you on a par uh, with the fellow who announced the Hindenburg disaster, which sounds very archaic to us now, but he was responding in the moment and he was responding in the style of the day. And he was providing access to uh, something that everybody was going to have to grapple with. And that's, that, that's the service that he provided that day. You guys got other questions? Um, we don't have time for any more questions. Okay. I would like to show a, a film that was submitted during the fan festival. It's Lady J Tribute oh, by Ted awesome. Jacobson. Awesome. So, uh, Thank you. Right <laughs> I hope we'll have time for just a few words after the tribute before we let you go. Here, here, here. I've been giving her tributes, all, I, you know, my entire... Because who deserves it more than me? No one, that's who. <laughs>
just about out of time, my friends. We'll uh, probably peek into the room, the big room, before we go, but we've uh, uh, we've been deeply honored and, and moved, and our eyes have been opened to um, the magic of G.I. Joe and to the reason that it's persevered all of these years and the stories that you brought us at the autograph table and through the course of the weekend have moved us deeply. We'll take them home with us, and we'll never forget them. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I just, uh, uh, before we close on, I just want to say thank you. This is my first JoeCon. I did a little signing in, in Provo, Utah at a comic book store, and I went, and these guys from, came from military bases with their wives, you know, 200 miles away, and I had no idea. And so I thought, well, if this is what's going on, I'm going to go. And uh, to hang out with you guys and, and hear your stories, and it's brought up so many memories for me. And one of the coolest things, I sat with, with uh, Troy's parents, the Perkins, and his mom, 55-year-old lady, uh, teaches uh, uh, in uh, Pittsburgh. And she said, I take Troy's collection of G.I. Joe action figures and the comic books and the, v- and the, and the old VHSs into school. And she's raised the literacy rates of her, of her students uh, uh, with, with Joe Action Figures. So I've heard so many great stories from you guys. I can't thank you enough. So I think we need to end with a... Hey, yo, Do you like retro shows? Did you grow up in either the 80s or the 90s? Then tune into Telecast, geekcastradio.com's newest podcast. Join us here on the Telecast as we revisit some of your favorite shows, such as Clarissa Explains It All, Salute Your Shorts, Saved by the Bell, and much, much more, only on geekcastradio.com. TuneCast is dedicated to the cartoons we grew up with. 100 episodes and more make up one of the GCRN's most popular podcasts. Join hosts TFG and Mike, Optimus Solo, Terror the Rising Star, and tons of guest hosts. We also have voice actor and writer interviews. Tune in to TuneCast as we look back on the cartoons that defined us as geeks. You can find TuneCast on iTunes and the web at www.geekcastradio.com. Tune in. Now, back to G.I. Joe. 
Section 3 allows for a citizen filibuster. If I stand here and refuse to yield my time, you are prohibited from voting on the bill. <clears throat> Let the filibustering begin. As many of you have noted uh, that use the Internet, it has been announced that Disney has required the rights to the Star Wars franchise. And in the summer of 2015, we will see the release of Star Wars uh, Episode 7. Herewith is my proposal for the plot of that movie. Uh, begin with standard uh, title uh, sequence and John Williams fanfare, uh, followed by a scroll to be written. I would like to mention that Brian De Palma wrote the original opening scroll for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. I think it would be a nice nod uh, to the franchise if he were to write this opening scroll. Then, pan down from the twin sons of Tatooine, uh, we are now close on the mouth of the Sarlacc Pit. After a beat, the gloved Mandalorian armor gauntlet of Boba Fett grabs onto the sand outside the Sarlacc Pit, and the feared bounty hunter pulls himself from the maw of the sand beast. Okay, this is and exactly... And we realize uh, that he survived his fall uh, during the battle at Jabba's uh, palace ship. Oh, then uh, do a hard cut uh, to a repurposed uh, Imperial destroyer. Uh, which has now been taken over by the Rebels. Uh, Commander Luke Skywalker, now a full Jedi Knight, uh, training new Padawans, uh, is using, ironically, uh, his father Anakin's red lightsaber, which will be uh, a, a symbolic, I think, visual for his battle uh, with how to uh, both bring about the new uh, Jedi Order uh, while still um, acknowledging his father's uh, fall from grace. This is uh, as he is training the Padawans, we pan outside of the control uh, window to a nearby asteroid where we see, and please allow me to finish this because it's going to seem like a bit of a jump, we see Thanos, who was the oh, villain teased at the end of the first Avengers movie. Now, Thanos, as you know, owns the Infinity Gauntlet, which has the time gem, the mind gem, the power gem, the space gem, and the reality gem. If he holds the reality gem, that means he can jump from different realities. This will be our link from to the Marvel Universe, from the Star Wars Universe. Uh, we then cut to Earth. Uh, Tony Stark uh, realizes okay, uh, that okay. there is... She, Tony Stark realizes this is someone that, that there I is know. a... I know, Tony Stark. Is. I know who that is. This is the first person I've known. Tony Stark realizes... I, I do not recognize uh, the chair. Tony Stark realizes that there has been a disturbance uh, in, in what he will call a time ribbon. Uh, for the time being, I will allow J.J. Uh, Abrams to think of a better uh, term for this, uh, and and he then starts to assemble uh, the the cream of the Marvel universe, not not the second tier superheroes that we saw in the first Avengers movie. I'm sorry, but Hawkeye and Black Widow are not first tier. He would go find uh, hello Spider Man. Spider Man exists in that universe. He would go find Moon Knight. He would go find Daredevil. He would go uh, find Hercules, and then that can bring in the entire uh, uh, pantheon of Greek gods that we saw in class and Wrath of the Titans. So now we have a giant three uh, franchise 
tie-in. Now, cut back to uh, the Imperial Star Destroyer. Uh, Luke uh, gets a visit from, and we only show this from the boots up first. So we show these, like, black boots with the, and then we pan up and, oh, my God, it's Han Solo. But he's old, older and grizzled and, and really, like, focused and cool. Like, he's seen some really bad stuff, and he actually seems shaken. And, and Luke is like, what's wrong, old buddy? And that's when Han drops Chewbacca's severed head onto the floor. Yes, in front no of all the Padawans. Way. Kids are gonna like floor, it. In front of the Padawans. Kids are not Please gonna. Please let me finish. Thank you. The Padawans are all horrified, and uh, 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 Han says that the planet Kashiak has been destroyed by this very mysterious force. Now we know, oh, this was Thanos. Thanos is beginning to, uh, you know, uh, gather power in this new universe. So uh, while they take Chewie's head down uh, to, because we've seen that, you know, they can build new bodies. They're going to build Chewie this really cool robot. I, I'm thinking spider body, you know, like a cool spider body with Chewie's head and, and ion cannons on it, but that will be in the, he'll come back. That'll be the, the post-credits tease of this film, so keep that in mind. So I don't want you guys bummed out, because Chewbacca's not dead. He will come back. Uh, then, uh, and then Han all, and then Luke looks down, and, and Han's wedding ring is gone. Hey, what happened with you and Leia? And Han's like, don't even get me started on that. So now we know, where, where did Leia go? Where did Leia go? She's not gone, but we will find out. But the female part's now, a little underwritten whole, so far, sir. I'd like to point that out. I am, I have citizen filibuster, thank you. And, and really, thank you for respecting uh, our town laws by interrupting me during this. Uh, where was I? Yes. Exactly then why we need to. At the, then at the edge of the uh, of the Star Destroyer's orbit, suddenly the time ribbon begins uh, wavering, and what comes through? The X Men's Quinjet. That's right. We, what we did was back on Earth. We showed him gathering up all the heroes, but we didn't see him gathering up the X Men. So, oh my goodness! Now Wolverine's going to be there. Now Cyclops is going to be there. So the Quinjet comes through. Luke gets in his X wing to go out and meet them, and they engage in this awesome star battle, and it looks like the Quinjet actually is going to shoot Luke down, and suddenly this volley of lasers comes in, and, and, and what comes flying in is we Robot think it's going to be... We think it's going to be the Millennium Falcon, just like in Episode 4 when he comes in and saves him uh, during the Battle of Yavin. But no, it is Slave 1. That's right, Boba Fett ship, ship Slave 1 has to save Luke because, of course, he's trying to track down Han. He can't have Luke die. So then... Now it's a battle between the Quinjet, between the X-Wing, between Slave One, and then uh, we see that Millennium Falcon uh, is flying away. So uh, now um, Slave One goes off to do, to do that. But then, then we cut down to Corsican, where uh, uh, Princess Leia uh, is now consulting with... Um, uh, with Lando Calrissian. Now, it looks like they're just having a very intense meeting about trade regulations and about, I will not, I will not finish my speaking about trade regulations and, 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 but then suddenly once, when the rest of the council meeting leaves, they fall into each other's arms. Oh my God, Lando Calrissian and Princess Leia are having an affair and that is why Han Solo, because look, Lando Calrissian was like, hey, if I'm gonna lose the Millennium Falcon to you, I'll just take your woman. And he has. So then we set that triangle up. Now, 
cut back to the Quinjet, and Reed Richards from the Fantastic Four is piloting it. Oh, it was a fake-out. He, It's him, and we have uh, select members of the X-Men that I thought, in, in my opinion, were, um, were not uh, focused on properly in the earlier films. We have Colossus in there. We have X-23, uh, which is Wolverine's daughter. And then we have a now mind-controlled Sabretooth and, of course, Wolverine. So imagine those two going up against Robot Chewbacca, because that's going to happen. That is what we're teasing right now. I have literally have no fluid in my mouth. i got to do a Marco Rubio. Can we please cut? <laughs>